If you were with us uh, a couple years ago during our Advent season, you will remember that our Serve the World partner um, at that time was a ministry called Stephen's Home. Uh, Stephen's Home is in Kershaw, Ukraine, and it's a home for adults with special needs when they've aged out of, of the provisions that the government has for them when they're kids, it, it gives them a place to go. Um, after that, Stephen's home was constructed, and um, Elise West, who has been, or as uh, Pastor Bruce refers to them, our Chapel Street staff around the world, has been our um, point leader there in, in Kirshen. Um, Elise is in Florida now. Um, her father passed away uh, a few weeks ago, and um, she's with her mom, but she's giving us regular updates um, as she receives them from um, what they call the house dad there in, in Kirshen. Um, Kirshen was one of the earlier cities that um, fell to, Roman, uh, to, Roman, to Russian occupation. And, um, and the good news in that is that the, the bombings and the threat of that has stopped and Stephen's home still stands. In fact, I can show you a picture of, of the community gathered in the basement of Stephen's home. So it's not only been there for the residents of the home, but others in the community have gathered. There's a video that we have of them um, worshiping together. And... Um, because we post our services online, they asked us not to, to show that video, but we could show the picture. But just as we were a moment ago singing and declaring that God is good together, um, they're doing the same thing in, in the Ukraine. The immediate need is for food. Um, they, they are out of food. In fact, that city is largely out of food. And so uh, the house dad is... is um, going to be going to the Russian forces to ask permission to travel to a nearby city in the hopes that he might be able to get food for the residents there. So if you can be praying along that lines, um, it, it would mean the world to them. Um, they're seeing the body of Christ mobilized in powerful ways, and yet there still remains around them a tremendous amount of uncertainty and fear, questions about if, if and how they could evacuate the residents. Um, that at this point seems... Um, very difficult, and so you can be praying in that regard too. In addition, uh, the Titus family, some of our other staff, is in the Czech Republic, and so they are hard at work receiving refugees through Poland, um, helping work with local churches there to provide housing, to provide care, food, basic needs. Uh, the Hansons are in Poland as well, and so we've got some people really right there in the midst of it, seeking to represent Jesus to the communities of people coming across the border, but the, the need is overwhelming. Um, and so we're, we want to continue as a body to, to remember them in prayer, to support them. Um, our denomination, Converge, has, uh, you can go on Pastor Bruce's Facebook page. There's a, a link there if, if you want to give to that. And we're looking into more ways that, that we can partner with these ministries. So let's just start this morning by, by praying for our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine and the surrounding areas. Father, we do just, um, we thank you for Stephen's home. It's, it's um, been such a tangible expression of your care and your provision before any of these latest events started to happen. And now it remains so. So Jesus, we pray your protection. Lord, we pray that you would meet their every need, that you would sustain them. Lord, I pray that this, this um, need for just daily basics, food, would be met by you. Um, whether that's through them being able to travel to get it or it's just people becoming aware of their need and sharing what they have. Lord, I just provide for them. And for those that are receiving these refugee families, Lord, I pray that you would um, 
mobilize your church. Open up homes and churches and every facility that they have to take people in, to share what they have, to give generously. Lord, I pray the same for us. Lord, I pray that you, we would use what you have given us to help meet this need. Lord, continue to um, provide in powerful ways. And Jesus, we will not stop praying for peace. Lord, please intercede. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. I'll try to, to keep you updated as I receive those updates. And, and I know they appreciate and, and value your prayers. Uh, we're going to continue this morning in our study of the gospel of, of Mark. And as I was thinking this week, I was preparing, I was reminded of that season, that time in life when I was dating Sherry at the time, I was come to the realization that she was the one that I wanted to spend like the rest of my life with. She was and is, in my estimation, the, the greatest human being that God has ever put on this planet. And I was just lucky to be around her. So I did the work of like starting to shop for an engagement ring. And, and many of you may know this, some of you may not. Um, Guys, if you're younger, pay attention to this. There's a, there's a guideline that they give you for how much money you're supposed to spend on an engagement ring. And they say it should be somewhere around three months' salary. So I started to do the math. I worked in a little coffee shop in downtown Chicago. I made about $100 a month. I timed that by three, and I went shopping, right? Like, I was like, and, and again, I was like right down by the uh, Water Tower Mall in Chicago. Like, that's... So that's where my dorm was at. I walked in there, and turns out there is not a lot that they had to offer in that budget range. Like, uh, they were like, you are in the wrong place, friend. And, and of course, I wanted, I wanted to spend a million dollars on an engagement ring for sure. I, I, I wanted to give everything that I had because the whole point of the engagement ring and, and the reason that that rule exists is that it's, it's intended to be an expression of costly devotion. There's a reason why it's supposed to be valuable. It's supposed to be, it's supposed to reflect the degree of commitment that you have in the relationship and what it, what it means to you. In fact, one of the ways that we commonly understand and think about and receive devotion in, in our lives is measured by cost, right? And in a number of ways. I remember watching my, my grandpa Dininger as my grandmother's Alzheimer's continue and decree, to increase as her symptoms became more severe, as her personality began to change. I remember him walking and caring and being with her every day. And I thought, that's, that's, that's costly devotion. It's beautiful. His commitment was evident. And I, I remember thinking at the time, that's, that's the kind of husband I want to be. That's, that's what I want my wife to experience from me. Throughout our study of, of Mark's account of Jesus' life, his, his ministry, what he's taught us, what it means to be a follower, this vision of the kingdom that he has been laying out in front of the people, the proclamation, the good news, right? The kingdom of God is here, and, and he came to announce that. As we've been working through this together, we have seen a number of times when people get Jesus wrong. A number of times when they sort of come with their own sense of expectation, their own assumptions, or their own really preferences about what Jesus should do and how we should do it. And they, they sort of impose that on Jesus. And I, by the way, I think there's a caution here. Like we do that. We, we can do that. We can bring our sort of ideology and kind of lay it over Jesus instead of allowing Jesus to form his kingdom in us. But people are doing that. 
But then there's also been these like beautifully transcendent moments. Moments when someone gains this fuller understanding of who Jesus is and his purpose. And what's interesting about this is oftentimes these have come from the, the unlikeliest of people. Sometimes it's a child who just understands the nature of Jesus in a way that the adults around them don't seem to, and they just come to him, they're attracted to him. Sometimes it's a, it's a Gentile living across the Sea of Galilee who knows nothing about the worship of Yahweh, who, who knows nothing about the temple, and yet sees Jesus in this healing and his power and, and responds to him. Sometimes it's a blind man sitting on the side of the road next to Jericho. And as Jesus walks by, he yells out in loud voice, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Right? He got it. This, this blind guy saw more clearly the truth about who Jesus was than the fully sighted people that were surrounding Jesus nearly every day. And today is another one of those moments. It's a transcendent moment where somebody gains a fuller understanding of Jesus and they respond in this incredibly beautiful act of worship, a, a, an act of costly devotion. So we're going to pick things up now in Mark chapter 14. Mark 14, at the beginning of the chapter, it says, It was now two days before the Passover, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leopard, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing for me, for you'll always have the poor with you. And whatever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So if you've been tracking along with us, you, you've noticed there's a, there's a shift taking place through these last chapters. When we go back all the way to chapter 11, when we're looking at the, the triumphal entry where Jesus is being paraded into pronouncements that he is the king, it's celebratory, it's exciting. Then, then there's this moment of conflict. Jesus goes into the temple. He sees the marginalized people around the temple being taken advantage of, and he says it's not going to happen here. And he starts turning over tables in, in, in pretty serious conflict unfolding. And in that same temple, when he's there with his disciples, and one of his disciples says, look around, Jesus, look at this amazing building that we have to worship in. And Jesus says, well, I, I tell you the truth, not one of these stones is going to be left standing on top of the other. And now here in 14, the shift continues to happen, and everything up to this point is now pointing us directly to the cross. It's all leading to the cross. In advance of his sacrifice, Jesus is anointed. He's prepared for what awaits him. 
And so as the chief priests and the Sadducee is out, uh, the Sanhedrin is out preparing to, to plot a way to kill Jesus, Jesus is readying himself to be our Passover lamb. In fact, one of the themes that you'll see in these surrounding chapters is really a theme of preparation. And it begins with an, an act of extravagant devotion. This is the first thing we see here is this act of extravagant devotion. Look again at verse 3. While he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard. Very costly. She broke the flask and, and poured it over his head. Like think for a moment about, about an instance when you've received an extravagant gift. What did that, what did you think? What did you feel? And most of the time you think, what did I get that person, right? Like, oh no. Sherry's a, Sherry's a, a much better gift giver than I am. Um, our first Christmas together, I'll never forget this. We, when we went on our honeymoon, we went out to Monterey Bay, California. Um, just this beautiful area. And so our big splurge on our honeymoon was we rented a Mustang convertible. And we just drove up and down the coast and it was beautiful. And so we took this drive down to like Pebble Beach and there's a 17 mile drive there and, and went to Carmel, which is a, a little town nearby and sat on the beach and watched a sea otter play out in front of us. And at one point in time in that, in that uh, when we were visiting there, we stopped by this art gallery and there was photography in there. And there was this one uh, piece in particular that I was just sort of um, taken aback by. And, and, and Sherry took a mental note. I'm not gonna tell you why because it's embarrassing for me, but um, it's Ohio State related. It's silly. I, I, but anyways, Sherry, like at the time, like we had spent all the money on the on the Mustang, right? Like there was no art gallery money, and so you know we left, and Sherry kind of slipped one of the cards from the art gallery in her pocket and took it home with her. And so this is before you know we bought stuff on the internet and this sort of thing. And for Christmas, she called and ordered this particular piece of art and had it shipped out and framed and I'm opening this up and I can hardly believe it, right? Like this, this gift that was so thoughtful, so, so understood who I was, what I wanted. And she was like giving it to it. And then it'd be like the comparison, like I, it's like, I went, I think I went to one store and I bought everything from one store and it was a clothes, it was a clothing store called the casual corner, I believe, which turns out was not her vibe at the time. I go, <laughs> there was a clear contrast between the nature of the gifts, but I remember being the recipient of that. I remember what that communicated to me. I remember how that gift showed me the way that she thought about me. And conversely, how much work I need to do in gift giving to show her what I thought about her. See, this is Mary's gift. We'll talk about Mary here in a minute, but this gift is it's a reflection of how she views Jesus. Pastor Brian, I heard him use this years ago, but it stuck with me. He, he defined worship once as costly devotion to something or someone. Part of the reason I appreciate that, that definition is because it, it helps me actually evaluate what I'm giving my worship to. What is, what, is, what is the recipient of my costly devotion? See here, Jesus, what's unfolding in the scene is it's, it's worship. And it's being laid down, it's being offered to Jesus. See, Jesus, he's, he has some notoriety in the town of Bethany, some street cred, if you will. 
If you think about all the way back to chapter 11, when that, that triumphal entry starts, that launches out of Bethpage and Bethany, these small towns outside of, of Jerusalem where, where Jesus is known and, and the parade begins from that point. There's a group of people who are convinced he is the Messiah. Part of the reason for that is because Jesus' friends lived in Bethany. There's a, uh, two sisters named Martha and Mary and their brother named Lazarus. You'll remember that it was Lazarus that, that Jesus raised from the dead. This is a community that very likely would have been there when, when Lazarus was, was buried, was laid in the tomb. They may have been there in that moment. We know there were onlookers when Jesus called him out of the tomb. They, they have seen Jesus do miraculous things, and they are convinced. Ad additionally here, notice that Jesus is in the home of someone named Simon the leper. Right? I don't know if you've ever had a nickname that you would like to shake, like to get rid of, but that seems like one that you're like, can I be Simon used to be the leper, right? Like, because just the fact that they're gathered in his home means that something miraculous has happened. It means that he is no longer uh, diagnosed with, with leprosy. Otherwise, he would be living outside of the community and people would not be with him. Some scholars actually think that, that Simon, by the way, is, is Martha, and Mary and Simon, or Martha and Mary and Lazarus' dad. It's kind of like around this table, there's this who's who of people who've been healed by Jesus. In fact, in, in the Gospel of John, when he accounts this same event, he notes that Lazarus is sitting there with him. And that Martha is, is being Martha, what she does is, is helping serve the meal and preparing and, and doing all this. And it's actually Mary who comes in and breaks this, this alabaster jar, this flask, and just pours it out over Jesus' head. The King James Version translates what, what's just translated simply as pure nard here as spike nard. Spike nard is a very specific, it's from a very specific rare plant in the mountains of India. It was, it was very rare, it was very costly, it was this very fragrant oil. And so it was, it was customary in that culture that if somebody came into your home that, that was of prominence, that had some some sort of honor to them is that the host would anoint their head with oil, put a drop of oil, this fragrant oil on their head. And, and it wouldn't necessarily even be this particular oil, it'd be whatever you had, but they had the good stuff. But Mary gives so much more. In fact, as we'll see this in a moment, the, the value of this jar of, of perfume is over a year's wages. So if we Think of this in our context. If the average, the medium salary in Kane County is somewhere around $80,000. But this guest comes into the home that you esteem, that you value so, so much, that you're willing to give this elaborate gift on their behalf. It's costly devotion. Some believe that, that this jar was likely Mary's dowry for her inheritance. In that culture, in that time, this, this is her security. This is her family's plan to provide for her. And she takes that very thing, this alabaster jar, and she breaks the neck of it off, and she begins to pour it over Jesus' head, all of it, laying it all out. This act of worship given by Mary is revealing her understanding of who Jesus is. 
This act of worship is, is showing, it's revealing that in her mind, Jesus is the one who's worthy of her extravagant devotion. Jesus is the one that she trusts with her security. He, he's the one that she trusts ultimately to be her provider. And so she, he is the one who is worthy in Mary's mind of her everything. Mary had a view of Jesus that moved her to place everything that she had in the hands of Jesus. I think there is an inherent, inevitable question that we have to ask in this text. At least that I wrestled with. And that is, what does my view of Jesus motivate me to give? What, what does your view, your understanding of Jesus compel you to offer to him? Because I think in this moment... Mary understands more about Jesus than anyone else in that room. I think she understood that he was the one, the only one worthy of her extravagant devotion. And so she offers it to him. She pours it out to him. But of course, not everyone here sees what Mary sees. And because their view of Jesus is something less than that, they respond very differently. In fact, there's, their response is a response of anger. A response of anger. This is the second thing we see here. Look again at, at verse 4 and 5. It says, there, was someone who, there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the, oit, the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and, and given to the poor, and they scolded her. Their response in, in the midst of this expression of beautiful worship, of devotion, is anger. Right? That this is, this is wasteful. You, you know that feeling you get as a parent when like, your kid asks for like, one more scoop of ice cream, and you're like, I know this is going to get wasted, and they take like, two bites, and you end up throwing it out. And you're like, there goes perfectly good ice cream. We were talking about this in the pastor's meeting, uh, or the preaching meeting. We meet regularly, and we talk about the passage, and just think together, and, and share ideas. And Pastor Jeff was talking about this, this portion. He goes, this reminds me of um, the Titanic. I was like, what? <laughs> He's like, yeah, you know that part at the end? If you know the story of the Titanic, it's this expedition for, um, we're talking about the movie now here, not, not the actual historical event. Um, <laughs> He's like, there's, they're in this expedition looking for this incredibly valuable diamond called the Heart of the Ocean. It's like a, a 56-carat diamond. It's, it's fictional, but it's, they say it's worth like $350 million, and they've got one of the survivors on the boat with them, and she's telling them the story of the Titanic and everything that unfolded, and they're hoping that she's going to guide them to, to find the diamond. And at the end of the movie, there's this submarine robot that's going around, and it opens up the safe, and when they open it up, it isn't there. And then at the end of the movie, Rose, who's this survivor, is standing next on this ship. She's standing there, and she opens her hand, and she's, she's holding the, the 56-carat diamond, the heart of the ocean. And she just drops it into the ocean. And you're like, what? Right? Like, why would you do? I get, like, that's poetic, but that's a bit, like, extreme, right? Like, that's a bit, and, and this is where the... The disciples, some of them are like, what is going on? Like, why would you do that? This is such a waste. J J the Gospel of John specifically identifies that it's Judas 
who is the one who's getting so upset here. But apparently I don't think he's the only one who views it this way. He sees Mary's act of extravagance, and his response is he gets upset. In fact, it says that he gets more than upset. He gets indignant. There's that connotation of upset to the point of rage. In fact, like in that verse, end of verse 5, when it says they scolded her, the Greek there connotates like um, the type of anger that like a bull has in the ring when when its nostrils are flaring. Like just pure, unmitigated rage. What are you doing? Why, how could you be so wasteful? We, we could have sold this. We could have done something worthwhile with it. And remember, by the way, Jesus is sitting right there when all this is unfolding. He had every opportunity to, to correct Mary or to redirect her if he felt it was needed. But Jesus receives this gift. I think the power of this text is revealed in the contrast of the responses. Mary, who comes to Jesus and she says, because of who you are, I give you everything. And Judas, who says, this is such a waste. In his eyes, he's not worth all that. See, it's all relative to how you view Jesus. We need it. We need to think of this in in our context, in our lives. Radical surrender to Jesus, extravagant devotion poured out to him because what you believe about him, how you understand him, is always going to look unreasonable. There's always going to be people that see a, a life sold out to Jesus and think that's irresponsible, even wasteful. There's a family in our church, and I, I won't name them, but they um, uprooted their entire family uh, several years ago and moved to a country in North Africa that's a conflict zone. Um, and where their faith is, the official government position to their faith is, faith is hostility, specifically if, if you were to share that faith with somebody else. They moved their entire family with small children into the midst of there just to live there, just to love people in this effort to reflect Jesus. And, and trust me, people around them, I, I thought it at times. And you watch something that seems so dangerous. And you think, well, that's, that's over the top. Right? Why, why are you doing this? That, that's, that's too risky. That's reckless. There must be better ways for you and your family to use your lives. But what is informing that decision for them? Because that offering isn't based on a kingdom economy that this world understands and values. It's based on how they see Jesus, what they believe about him. And so for them, it makes perfect sense and obedience to him to lay it all down at at his feet and to say that you have our everything. But all this, this entire passage, it's, it's moving specifically in the direction of a greater gift. And this is the third thing we see here. It's leading us to an understanding of a greater gift. Again, look at how Jesus responds. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me, for you will always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you'll not always have me. 
She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, whenever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Just, just before the start of the, the pandemic, um, Sherry and I listed our, our house on the east side of Batavia up for sale. And um, it was a little bit of kind of a, on a whim, not knowing what it ultimately sell. What, I had this idea in my mind, I, I need to get this amount for this house in order to, to make this move. Because Sherry and I bought that house in the summer of 2007. So if you remember, like the market was like, July 2007, we buy a house the next day. It was like, shoot, you know, like. And so I was just kind of like, I want to recover some of what we put into this house and what we invested in. And I had this, so we did what you do. You have a realtor come over, they walk through, they see how many bedrooms they are, what condition things are in. And, and they give you a range and, and say, here's what I, I think you can sell it for. But I remember her saying something that um, that stuck with me. She said, really, it's ultimately worth what somebody's willing to pay for it. So she said, you might have some people come in and, and give you lowball offers, and in their mind, that's what it's worth. She said, theoretically, you could have a cash buyer come in and say, I think this house is worth a million dollars, and give you a million dollars for this house, because that's what they think it's worth. That, that unfortunately, is not what, <laughs> what happened. But, but there, this correlation between devotion and worth is critical, and it's leading us somewhere. By the way, some people here have, have used Jesus' words as a, um, to make a case that we're not responsible to care for the poor, which is uh, entirely missing the point of what's happening in this text, and also completely ignores what Jesus says in other areas of the Gospels. That's not Jesus' point. Jesus receives Mary's act of worship, and he understands, he has the view that this is an act of preparation for the gift that he is going to give when he lays down his life for us. This gift that he receives from Mary is preparing the way for a greater gift. And so as we see in this chapter, in chapter 14, there's these exchanges that are taking place. We see Mary's act of extravagant devotion laid out to Jesus. We see the response of others who look and say, this is wasteful. In fact, look at verse 10. Immediately following this, it says, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Jesus is, would, Judas would ultimately betray Jesus for a fraction of the cost of what, what Mary has poured out to Jesus in this passage. But then ultimately, we, it's all about Jesus. Jesus extols Mary's gift. He commends her as this anointing in advance of his gift. Jesus understands. He knows that the cross is in front of him. And he knows that following his death on the cross, his disciples would be unable to properly prepare his body for burial because of the, the Sabbath laws. Jesus knew that his burial process was happening in this moment. That that's what this anointing was about. See, Mary's gift, it's, it's only reasonable if we understand it through the lens of the worth 
to which she viewed Jesus. But we also have to understand the lens from which Jesus would give his gift. See, at the heart of this text is a reminder that Jesus' worth that he has placed on us, his act of extravagant devotion, his love, is going to cost him his life. He's going to lay that all down for our benefit. That's the gift that he's going to give. Jesus says at the end of this text, he says, whenever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. We're doing that right now. When we rightly understand the gospel, when we perceive that Jesus would offer himself as a sacrifice for our sin, when we understand the nature of his gift, then the only reasonable response in light of that is to, to respond like Mary did, to, to take everything, extravagant worship, extravagant devotion poured out to him that says you are the one who is worthy to have it all. You are the one who is, is worthy of everything because of what he has done for us. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you again for Mary's ability to cut through all the expectation and assumption and just to see Jesus as her provider and, and her security and to pour out to him this extravagant act of, of devotion. And Jesus, we're reminded in the midst of, of all of this that he is the one who is worthy. He's the one who's worthy of our worship, our extravagant devotion. And we can do that because he has poured out himself for us. So Jesus, we want to pause to just consider and be reminded of the gift that you would give. We want to take time to receive that this morning. And we want to respond. We want to respond and worship to you because you're the one who is worthy to receive it all. You are the one who's worthy of our everything. It's in your name we pray. Amen.